Hello, and welcome to episode six of Gut Instinct, research updates, bringing you the latest research in gastroenterology and hepatology. I'm Tamsin Cargill. I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology at Oxford, interested in hepatology, viral hepatitis, and vaccine development. And I'm Michael Fitzpatrick, known as Fitz to pretty much everyone, and as well as Tamsin's podcast sidekick, I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology in Oxford, and my research interests are in celiac disease and uh, clinical nutrition. So we started this podcast to bring you some of the most interesting GI-related papers that have come out recently, and we are already on episode six. Um, Each episode we'll talk you through uh, normally a couple of primary research papers in a bit of detail, one clinical and one translational, although today we've got two cracking clinical endoscopy papers for you. So um, uh, it'll give, we'll give you our take on the research and what we think of it. Clearly there are loads of great papers coming out every month. So in addition, we'll give you a slightly more rapid fire rundown of what else is out there in the gastro world in our five in 15 section. We're aiming to give you some context and critical appraisal of the papers we talk about. Um, And while we both love gastro, I'm uh, more interested in liver disease, whereas Fitz is more interested in IBD, small bowel and nutrition. So hopefully this podcast will have something for everyone. Now, as we say each episode, no podcast should constitute medical advice. If you are a patient, go and consult your medical practitioner for advice about your medical management. And for doctors, please, I'm sure you would not base your medical management solely on what some people told you on the internet, and you will verify this with your own reading and research. Um, Do let us know what you think of the podcast. Um, We're on Twitter. Uh, You can write write us a lovely review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you use. And we'd really love to hear from you with any uh, suggestions or thoughts. Now, Townsend, do you want me to start today? Yeah, go for it. Cool. So um, I read too many papers. It's not often a problem. Uh, but I realised um, I had I had I had five that I wanted to talk about today, um, and there are two two I think really interesting um, endoscopy papers. I don't think we've spent enough time talking about endoscopy, uh, so they're nice clinical trial papers in endoscopy. And um, interestingly, I was reading one of them this afternoon while in endoscopy, and the consultant I was scoping with is one of the authors on the paper. There you go, multitasking. I interviewed them about the, 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 the paper while, while chatting over, over a light colonoscope. And this is about colonoscopy. Um, this paper was in Gastroenterology just a few days ago, and it is entitled The Impact of Artificial Intelligence on Misrate in Colorectal Neoplasia. Um, and this is from a group of authors from Florida, from Italy, uh, a few other centres, and also from Oxford, where we are based. Um, so uh, on the author list is is James East, uh, Rebecca Palmer, and 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 Beth Bird Lieberman, uh, amongst others from the Oxford um, endoscopy group. So the background to this is that um, we know that there is a significant miss rate in colorectal rectal neoplasia. So so polyps. Um, 
after an index surveillance colonoscopy. And it's one of the key drivers for, you know, the the real problem in colorectal cancer screening, which is post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. So that's a um, that's a, a cancer occurring after a screening colonoscopy um, that wasn't picked up. And the, the incidence for that is around 1% at 10 years. So quite significant. And studies have suggested that around half of that is due to the fact effectively we've missed smaller polyps at that index colonoscopy and that that's progressed along that adenoma carcinoma pathway and developed into a colorectal cancer. So in studies that have yeah, have looked at the miss rate of colorectal neoplasia, so if you, for instance, do back-to-back colonoscopies, the miss rate is surprisingly high, uh, in the range of 25% missed polyps at these, these screenings. And uh, effectively, they can either be due to the fact that the mucosa has been inadequately visualized we've not been able to see around a certain fold or particular areas like in the cecum or the hepatic or splenic flexure which are harder to visualize are just not seen or we've visualized it but the endoscopist has not recognized that there's pathology there and there are a variety of factors that can drive that so inexperienced operators lack of training distraction tiredness all of these are reasons why a polyp may flash up on screen but the colonoscopist doesn't see this. So it would be great if there was a way we could augment our detection of polyps uh, during colonoscopy. And certainly there's been a lot of research over over the last uh, decade or so using artificial intelligence um, platforms, so sort of deep learning platforms to analyse uh, the, the um, data from the colonoscopy and try and highlight areas that may contain a polyp. And studies of these technologies have been pretty successful in that they are uh, in the range of sort of 95% sensitive and 88% specific for finding colorectal neoplasia, finding polyps on colonoscopy. But what we're really interested in is how they affect either adenoma detection rate, so the percentage of surveillance colonoscopies where an adenoma is uh, detected, but also adenoma miss rate, so how many adenomas are missed. Um, now there are quite a lot. There are a number of trials using um, uh, AI technologies, and in particular, a, a technology called GI Genius, which is made by Medtronic. Um, and they've looked at adenoma detection rates. So that's the number of surveillance colonoscopies where you find an adenoma, and. Um, Studies have shown that the re- that there's a relative increase in your adenoma detection rate of about 44%. So it increases your adenoma detection rate, which is great. Um, but um, post-colonoscopy colorectal cancers will be also driven by your missed uh, your uh, your um, adenoma miss rate, and they're subtly different things because your Adenoma detection rate is uh, per patient. So like we've either found a polyp in this patient or we haven't. But your adenoma miss rate is per polyp. So let's say the patient has three polyps, but you only found two. You've missed one polyp. So you might have, you might have detected one polyp in that patient, but actually you missed the other two. Um, so they are both important metrics when we consider uh, trying to prevent post 
uh, polypectomy um, uh, colorectal cancers. And this is what this trial was uh, trying to um, uh, trying to test was whether using this AI can increase our um, uh, sorry can decrease the adenoma miss rate. Okay. So the study design this was performed in three countries and in eight centres. And in each centre, there were at least three endoscopists. So I really like this sort of trial design. So we're controlling for, um, we're controlling for for sort of uh, Europe, UK, and United States in terms of location, but also different endoscopists. And actually, they they controlled to some extent for the kind of, I guess, the quality and experience of these endoscopists. So they were all pretty experienced. They'd all done at least a thousand colonoscopies, and they all had adenoma detection rates in the range of between 20 to 40 percent so, they were so pretty good yeah they're pretty good endoscopists but it's not like some trial just you know just with the with two you know two incredible endoscopists or indeed just with novel endoscopists so i think this is kind of representative of you know kind of high quality um high quality endoscopy but but in the kind of more real world setting um, all of these, the patients were in the trial, were uh, patients over 45 years old who were having a screening or surveillance procedure for um, colorectal cancer. So they either had previous polyps or they met whatever the criteria was for screening in their, their country. And they excluded people with um, uh, polyposis syndromes. So they were sort of standard sort of ad, you know, adenoma risks as opposed to specific polyposis syndromes. And uh, they randomised the patients to undergo uh, one of two arms of a back-to-back design. So these lucky patients got not one colonoscopy times in, but two, <laughs> two back to back. So you know, you just you know pull out. That's the end of the procedure, sir. Uh, and then it's like, and now we're going to oh, do it. And again. now we're going to do it all over again. Roll over and let's start. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> Oh God! So, uh, so wow, the, uh, I'm I'm surprised anyone consented to that, but that's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you'd be delighted to know 230 patients, um, 200, uh, 230 subjects were included in the analysis, uh, and they were split in to either have standard white light endoscopy followed by AI augmented white light endoscopy, or vice versa. Okay. And effectively, they were, what they were kind of measuring is how many polyps were found on the second endoscopy. And the the operator for both endoscopies was the same? Is was that right? the same. I presume on the first endoscopy, they didn't remove any polyps they saw? No, I think they locked them off if they, if, if they were okay. to be to be removed. So it was about okay. whether you found any more. Okay, fine. And they, um, they clearly randomised patients. They, the randomisation was very sensibly stratified by um, by age, by indication for endoscopy, by um, uh, study site and country and so on. So it was all um, all very uh, all very sensible in terms of design. Um, I am not an AI expert, Tamsin, um, but I will basically just read this paragraph from the paper. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not either. Sorry. GI Genius by Medtronic. Uh, has um, has been evaluated in a number of different trials uh, before, but it's a technology on a convolutional neural network um, that was trained on a series of 2,684 histologically confirmed polyps 
uh, in a previous high quality randomized trial. And the idea of the GI genius is that it can recognize these polyps and also classify what it thinks they are. So whether it thinks they're adenomas or hyperplastic or serrated or things like that. So basically whether you should remove them or not. Um, and uh, the output is quite nice because some of the early AI uh, tools had a whole separate screen. So you were trying to look at two screens at once. So that's that's not great. But all this does is effectively it puts a little little red box around the um, uh, puts a little box around the uh, what it thinks is the lesion. And so it just attracts your eye and then you can evaluate it as you as you usually would. And it's currently approved for use in both the US and Europe. Okay, um, that sounds that sounds all very good. Uh, I think the I mean the only sort of limitations of the colonoscopy procedure was that uh, they uh, the endoscopists were not allowed to use NBI or dye spray, narrowband imaging or dye spray for the detection of the polyps. They, they could use NBI to characterise a lesion further if they wanted to once they'd spotted it, but not not for for things. So this was not using any of those other um, uh, those other tools. Um, okay. Um, so uh, they screened 253 patients, randomised 249, and 230 were included in the main analysis. And you know there are a, a few people who didn't complete their their, their colonoscopy, um, a few patients who who dropped out for technical reasons or withdrawal or adverse events, but um, the vast majority were included in the uh, analysis. And they did a sensible power calculation. Um, so the results. So the key one was the adenoma miss rate, which was calculated by how many polyps were found on the second colonoscopy in the back-to-back -back colonoscopy um, as a percentage of the total number of polyps found in both procedures together. So the total number of polyps, that's, I guess, as a, as a sort of a ground truth for how many polyps we think there actually were. Um, and the adenoma miss rate was significantly lower in the AI arm compared to the standard white light endoscopy arm. So it was 16.6% in the AI arm versus 34.6% uh, in the white light endoscopy arm. So that sounds like quite a big yeah. absolute difference. So that's that's a reduction. Yeah, about about half the rate um, of um, of missed adenomas using the AI technology. Um, so that's the headline news, that this technology works effectively in a, in a slightly more real-world setting. Um, what's interesting is when you start to look at the kind of the size and what kind of lesions they were. So the this was driven uh, in the main by small polyps. So the detection of polyps less than five millimetres um, uh, in in diameter so that was significantly different but actually polyps between 6 and 10 millimeters or polyps greater than 10 millimeters were not significantly different between the two arms now the trial wasn't powered to detect those subgroup differences but it does seem that the major effect seems to be with smaller polyps um, and these were mainly little sessile lesions um, it seemed to augment the detection in all parts of the colon, the right colon and and the left colon, um, uh, which is uh, which is encouraging. Um, and that then affects how those patients are managed because for uh, a, a number of those patients, they had a more 
more polyps detected, and that then puts them into a shorter surveillance interval. Yeah, so, so it actually, it's not just that we're lopping off those polyps and preventing them progressing uh, potentially to colorectal cancer, but actually it changes their surveillance interval as well. And of course, that would have a different uh, uh, that would have a different impact depending on which country you're in with the different surveillance guidelines in different areas of the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and potentially in the UK with our less um, in, less frequent surveillance compared to, for example, the US, that could potentially have a bigger impact. Yeah, it could put someone from not having follow-up endoscopies to, to having them. So actually, you know, for those patients could make a big difference. I think the other thing that's helpful is there's a nice forest plot on figure two. And although a lot of the these differences in larger polyps and so on were not significant, all of them were trending in some some towards AI being superior. And I, I suppose if the, if the study isn't powered to detect those subgroup analyses, then, you know, you'd expect... Um, that maybe they don't find a significant yeah. difference when in the real world that there might well be. So overall, I think this is Ooh. a really interesting technology. And, I, and yeah. I guess when the costs come down, or when it gets just integrated within systems rather than being an expensive add-on, I think I, I can't imagine anybody doing surveillance endoscopy and not wanting to just turn on the extra button and, and having this. And it sounds great. Has it ever been compared directly to other methods like MBI? They haven't mentioned it in this paper. I'm not sure I know the literature well enough to say for certain, but it doesn't. It doesn't look like it. Um, I guess. I guess most people don't use NBI as a kind of routine tool all the way around the back. No, no. Whereas this would just literally sort of highlight when you're there. It's like a. You don't have to do anything differently, really, as the yeah. as the operator. Definitely. And, uh, and in terms of dye spray, I think everybody would love to find evidence that dye spray isn't needed because it's, you know, it is a pain in the proverbial. Isn't yes. it? So it would be great to be able to, you know, have have something that was as good as dye spray and didn't involve all the faff. So that's really, um, that's really encouraging. I guess my, my caveat is that the polyps that it seemed to detect most often, the the ones that really drove this different in miss rate, are these really kind of diminutive polyps, which are the least likely to progress to invasive colorectal cancer over a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. And certainly in countries that have a bowel cancer screening program or a colonoscopy program, um, I guess there is a question of how, in 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 real world data, what finding a few more of these tiny polyps would actually would actually do to missed colorectal cancers um so i think i think if i were you know having to pay a huge amount of money to implement this technology i can imagine um maybe being a bit skeptical um having said that i think if i was a patient being scoped um or if i was the endoscopist doing surveillance i can't you know, I can't really see any great downsides. And I think I'd want to clip it in. And I think it's very cool. And I think it really shows, um, one, uh, kind of where the future of aspects of endoscopy are going. So having these sort of focused um, uh, focused uses of sort of AI technology to help us with certain, certain tasks. Um, 
but also I think just a really, really nice study which has been done in a kind of a rigorous manner to evaluate these technologies where I think sometimes the hype can maybe exceed the, the, the reality. Yeah, no, I think it's a great paper. Thank you for presenting that one. That's a good one. Um, shall I do a sciencey paper? Yeah, I'll do a sciencey one and then I'll, I'll do an endoscopy sandwich. An endoscopy sandwich. With a second, second endoscopy. So my sciencey paper is um, entitled Next Generation Sequencing of Bile Cell-Free DNA for the Early Detection of Patients with Malignant Biliary Strictures. And this was published um, last month in GUT. Um, and the lead author, I hope I pronounced this correctly, is Archidera. Um, et al and the group is from Spain. So um, the background for, for this paper is that um, as we all know the diagnostic accuracy of the current methods for um, diagnosing a malignant biliary stricture as opposed to a benign biliary stricture um, is relatively poor. So sort of looking at studies overall sensitivity um, using cytology with biliary brushings uh, plus a CA99 plus maybe um, fish analysis on um, a pathology specimen ranges from between um, 14 to 60 percent. So not fabulous. So that means that um, we see a stricture that we think might be malignant and uh, the uh, the diagnosis is either it's a benign stricture when actually it's malignant or it's unclear whether it's benign or malignant when it's actually malignant. And um, the, the sort of problems with that is that that feeds into some of the poor prognosis of patients with malignant biliary strictures because it contributes to late diagnosis of malignancy and therefore the treatment options for them are more limited. Um, so we know that there are molecular changes in um, both pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma and cholangiocarcinoma, which can both uh, lead to malignant biliary strictures. Um, and they've been identified using either whole genome sequencing or targeted platforms looking at particular cancer associated genes in tumour DNA. Um, where they've actually taken either a, bit, a proper big um, histological sample of tumour or a biopsy and sequenced the tumour itself. And there are some recurrent alterations in oncogenes and tumour suppressor genes. And they can be associated with the anatomical site of the tumour. So, for example, intrahepatic um, cholangios are associated with um, mutations um, in something called IDH1 in 13% of patients and FGFR2 in 20% of mutations and extrahepatics um, cholangio and gallbladder cancer are associated with KRAS or ERBB2 mutations in up to 20% of patients. Um, there are also differences between tumours of with a different background etiology, for example patients that have PSC-related uh, biliary cancer or liver fluke-related biliary cancer are associated with particular mutations. 
Um, but And the importance of this overall is that some of these mutations are now molecular targets for um, oncology drugs that are now approved for treatment. So, for example, with that IDH1 mutation in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, there's a drug called ivacidinib, which is a small molecule inhibitor of IDH1, and that's been shown to improve progression-free survival in addition to um, the usual treatment um, for non-surgically um, rese resectable um, biliary cancers that have that mutation in them. But in order to have that drug, you need to have had a biopsy that shows you have that mutation. So previous pilot studies have shown that you can identify cancer, these cancer mutations using next generation sequencing technologies and that this can improve the diagnostic accuracy um, of um, diagnosing a malignant as opposed to a benign biliary stricture. And these previous um, sequencing methods, have they been looking at bile or have they been looking at circulating DNA? Various different things. So um, there's been uh, about four different studies. So two of them have looked at circulating tumour DNA in the blood. And these uh, were, were um, published 2015, one of them, and 2019, another. And basically they take blood from patients with biliary strictures and they um, both used, used different but targeted panels, uh, genetic panels that use next generation sequencing to identify uh, between 15 and 54 different cancer mutations or common cancer mutations. And often those studies paired that with um, analysis of mutations detected in tumour biopsies as well as the blood. And they've basically shown that the, the sequencing of cell-free DNA in the blood is feasible, it's accurate and it's sensitive. So the concordance between mutations found in the blood and in the tumour itself was pretty good. In those studies, they haven't um, actually tested or investigated their diagnostic accuracy in the a clinical sense um, of diagnosing a malignant versus a biliary stricture. These were all proven malignant strictures. Um, now, a, a more recent paper that was published in GUT two years ago has sequenced, used next generation sequencing of um, biliary brushings or biopsies um, in the diagnostic algorithm alongside usual imaging pathology in CA199. And this study basically showed that um, using a 28 gene targeted next generation sequencing panel um, in a lot of patients actually, um, so over 250 patients, this improved malignant stricture detection when they used the sequencing versus looking at the biopsy or cytology alone. Um, and that increased the sensitivity to about 73% um, versus uh, pathology alone being about 48%, both with high specificity of nearly 100%. Um, and the other thing it can do in a small majority of patients was identify um, some of them for targeted therapy. Like I was saying before, it, um, there are certain new drugs that are approved for treatment if um, they can, the patient can be shown to have that mutation in the tumour. 
so these methods also allow um, that uh, allow tailored treatment for specific patients. Looking for cell-free tumor DNA in bile has also been done, but a long time ago, and not using next-generation sequencing methods. So we know that there is cell-free tumor DNA in bile in patients with biliary strictures, malignant biliary strictures, and in the early kind of 2000s, there were several papers that looked at cell-free DNA, um, but they looked at two, um, two common mutations uh, or, or two common genes that are mutated in uh, biliary cancer, KRAS and TP53. Um, but because they didn't use next-generation sequencing, um, you know, it, it took a long time and they only focused on a few codons only. And that all of those lacked sensitivity, so didn't improve the diagnostic algorithm at all. And that was all kind of left, um, left a bit at that, at that time. And have any of these previous methods progressed towards uh, any kind of diagnostic tests or have they really stayed as a uh, sort of a translational, uh, as a yeah, translational study? So um, none of them are used um, in any diagnostic algorithm that I know of in um, clinical practice. And that's really what this study set to address. So the panels that are available commercially, um, sort of the... Uh, the targeted the targeted panels are a variety of different ones and they're made by um, science technology companies you know essentially uh, that uh, one of us could buy and and use in a lab for research purposes only so what this study set out to do was to evaluate two commercially available assays of uh, of two different targeted next generation sequencing platforms to identify cancer-associated genetic mutations in cell-free DNA from bile samples in patients with biliary strictures undergoing ERCP. So it's a pilot study to see whether this is feasible and also see whether clinically this improves diagnostic accuracy um, in the usual diagnostic algorithm. We know from that 2020 study that using these kind of things can improve the diagnostic accuracy when you've got cytology and brushings and you use this technology on them. But can this improve things even more if you just look at the cell-free DNA in bile samples, um, which could potentially open it up to more patients? Because, of course, often you have an insufficient cytology or pathological sample for analysis. I thought it might be good just very briefly to talk about what next generation sequencing is um, and what it means as a little scientific aside. Um, do you think that would be helpful slash interesting? I, I think a couple of minutes on it is a is a good one because I'll be honest, it, it was it was a couple of years into my PhD, um, really only when I was about to run some NGS experiments that I actually bothered to learn how it works. Same. And um, actually, the history, history is quite interesting, I think. So um, basically, if you go back through the history of how we have learnt as a scientific community to sequence um, genes and then whole genomes, um, there was a big kind of leap forward as such um, in the 70s with uh, the development of Sanger sequencing which uses something called the chain termination method. Um, and um, 
basically what this does is it takes a primer which targets a specific start codon of interest within a genome. So you have to know what you're looking for. You have to know where you want to start that primer. You add in some DNA polymerase. You add in some nu um, nucleic acids. And you also add in some particularly uh, um, some special nucleic acids, I guess. Um, so they're terminal nucleic acids with a fluorescent dye attached. Um, initially, it was actually radiolabeled. And then it uses PCR to amplify. So you start with, start with a DNA sample. You add all this stuff. The primer um, then, and the DNA polymerase then leads to the addition of these nucleic acids. And then finally, you'll get this terminal nucleic acid, which you can detect either by radiolabel or later with a fluorescent dye. And um, because that, that labelled one is a terminal nucleic acid, from this one primer, you will get um, gene reads of different lengths um, or DNA strands of different lengths. And you can then work out, um, if you order them all by length, um, what each um, nucleic acid at that terminal point is because the fluorescent dye or the radio label um, is, is different for the four different nucleic acids and nucleic acid possibilities. And then you can build up what you think the genetic code of that sequence is. That basic method is still used now in next generation sequencing. The main difference with next generation sequencing is you can do it much quicker on much more sample in a massively parallel way. So rather than you just um, targeting one specific start codon and just looking at you know one gene that you're interested in, you can sequence an entire genome pretty quickly. So in order to do that, the setup is a little bit different, but but um, Essentially, it's the same. It's a very, very similar process, but um, you're not restricted to a particular. You can be restricted to a particular gene of interest, but you can just sequence everything. So that's a quick overview of next generation sequencing. And uh, you know, and as as you said, like the scale and power of these technologies have just you know absolutely, absolutely you know leapt over the last. 25 30 years it's transformed so much um, and it has so many different applications um, and in the context that we're talking about now um, with these sort of gene panels of known cancer mutations this wouldn't have been possible really without next generation sequencing to bring to a clinical content context or to have um, basically a kit you can buy from a bioscience company um, that you can use on on patient samples in in a lab, because it would have taken too long. And so these panels, I'm sure you're probably about to go onto this, but are, are the panels looking for just detection of a particular gene in the bile, or are they detecting mutations in those genes within the bile? So I think they are detecting specific mutations. Okay. They looked at two different commercially available ones, both produced by Thermo Fisher, so the same company. Both were not designed specifically to look for 
biliary malignancy, they are just panels of genes. Um, so one of them's a 52 gene panel and one of them's a 161 gene panel. One of the assays was called the Oncomine Pan-Cancer Cell-Free Assay. They've called it in this paper the Bile Mute Assay. This looks at 52 genes. And the panel was developed to detect sort of cell-free DNA fragments um, in blood. And the cell-free DNA fragments that are found in blood in general do tend to be small, so it's a bit more sensitive. And they also uh, used something called the Oncomine Comprehensive Assay, um, which looks for more um, genes or gene mutations, 161. But this is, has been developed to detect larger DNA fragments from histological spe specimens that are sort of um, uh, paraffin embedded or, um, or, you know, on slides or frozen um, sections. So the initial part of this paper, uh, they took bile and plasma, ran these two different commercially available panels on them, and found that the, the first one, so the bile mute assay, detected a higher number of mutations than the other one in the bile, and it was more sensitive. So that's the one they decided to test more extensively in their patient sample. What they then set out to do was really a pilot study of diagnostic accuracy of this bile mute assay. Um, and they, uh, the cohort they tested it in was prospective um, in 68 patients with biliary strictures that clinicians were suspicious for malignant, you know, they could be malignant, they could be benign, in a single centre in Spain. That was the inclusion criteria. They, were, they had to be undergoing an ERCP and they had to have an undiagnosed biliary stricture. There weren't any specific exclusion criteria. There wasn't a detailed consult diagram and it wasn't powered. But I think this was just because it was a pilot study trying to understand whether these methods were feasible in, in this context. So the, the reference standard they used was usual care diagnostic pathway, which, as we know, includes imaging. ERCP if the patient is appropriate for that, plus if possible cytology, so from biliary brushings, or histology from biopsies, if again that's technically possible. Um, and actually the reference standard really was using that diagnostic pathway and what their final diagnosis was at a year after their initial ERCP. And we'll talk about why a year, not um, immediately later. And the index tests they compared that to was this bile mute assay, so the cell-free DNA um, mutation detection in bile, um, and the usual care diagnostic pathway, but the initial diagnosis. So their diagnosis after their initial ERCP imaging and, and cytology. The primary outcome wasn't specified, but they reported the sensitivity and specificity of each diagnostic test um, calculated for the initial and final diagnosis, so I presume that was what their main outcome was looking at. The 68 patients with the biliary strictures all underwent an ERCP, um, and their initial diagnosis after that ERCP with cytology or um, histolo histology, 26 were benign, 9 were indeterminate, and 33 were malignant. And of those 33 that were diagnosed as being malignant, um, their final diagnosis at a year was they were all malignant. 
So if you're labelled as having a malignant stricture in that initial diagnosis with the current diagnostic pathway, we know it's probably it's pretty much cancer. But the final diagnosis for the um, 26 benign strictures um, at a year, actually 14 of them turned out to be malignant. Mm-hmm. And of the nine indeterminate strictures, eight of them turned out to be malignant, just using at a year, just using the normal diagnostic pathways. And what happened between the initial and the final diagnosis in these patients, completely ignoring the Balmute assay, this is just um, using normal uh, clinical practice, is patients had more imaging, more ERCPs, maybe more more histology, etc., etc., and and clinically they progress clinically or radiologically they progressed or died or whatever and and the diagnosis was made clear so the crux of this is actually does the bile mute assay improve the diagnostic accuracy of the initial diagnosis so for the index test being usual care initial diagnosis it turns out at a year there were 13 benign strictures and 55 malignant strictures, of which 24 were cholangio uh, and 9 were pancreatic. And the sensitivity of that usual care initial diagnosis was 60%. Not great. The specificity, as we said before, was 100%. When they looked at the bile meat assay, um, and they uh, classified a positive result as any positive detected mutation on that bar mute assay at the initial point of diagnosis of the benign of the strictures that turned out to be actually benign at a year um, nine of them didn't have any mutations on the bar mute assay but four of them were false positives so they had mutations so they would have been classified as malignant by that bar mute assay but in fact um, at that year they did not have malignant stricture but for the detection of malignant malignant strictures the bile mute assay identified 53 um, of 55 truly malignant strictures and uh, there were two false negatives now that working out the numbers that means that the sensitivity using the bile mute assay increases to 96.4 percent but the specificity does drop to about 70%. But this isn't, isn't in combination. And the other thing to say, um, for those uh, four false positives, one of them actually on longer follow-up turned out to have pancreatic cancer, which is interesting mm. because it had essentially probably picked up a mutation that was there very, very early of a cancer that probably was already there, but of course that can't be proven. That's really interesting. So this assay most frequently identified KRAS and TP53 mutations. Um, it's these, these mutations are um, not molecular therapeutic targets currently. Um, they're also uh, mutations that occur in lots of different types of cancers, not just malignant um, biliary cancers. Um, It did identify IDH1 and FGFR2 in a, well, in two and one patient, um, 
and these are molecular targets and this was a small sample um, but for these particular patients that would that changed their management because it meant they were eligible for different drugs. And those targets they've detected in the bile did they have matched tissue and did they show that the mutations in the bile correspond to the mutations in the tumour? Yeah. So um, this was in a supplementary figure and they did have tissue samples for all of the bile samples. In total, 68 mutations were identified and 50% of them were, nearly 50% anyway, were common to both the tissue and the bile. But 35% of them were found in the bile and not the tissue. So um, it's not the concordance is not as high as, um, for example, it, it was in previous studies of um, these type of assays looking at cell-free DNA in the blood versus hmm. uh, a tumour sample, which is interesting. <clears throat> but I guess the point of the paper is not to look at that so much because... Um, it does overall probably improve the sensitivity um, of, of diagnosis earlier, which might um, improve diagnostic accuracy in these patients. Just in terms of diagnostic accuracy, I mean, clearly they've evaluated it compared to standard, which is, is, is great for a pilot study. But in reality, we're not going to ignore other things like, you know, radiological features or... Um, or the the brushings or other other aspects mm. that might push you towards a, you know labeling something as a benign or malignant thing. Do they do any mm. kind of exploratory analyses about how how it might be integrated into the in, into the care pathway? So there is a figure where they suggest how it could be integrated, but what they don't do specifically is yeah. an integrated analysis. You know. In, it was adding it to usual care but I mean that's how they envisage it being used obviously because you wouldn't want to drop that specificity that's already good and there from the usual diagnostic pathway you just want to improve the sensitivity so it makes sense that you add it rather than use it instead of plus we'd still do the imaging plus we'd still do the ERC you know have to do the RCP for this uh, but you'd still do the brushings or the spyglass biopsy or whatever it was and I guess, I mean, what what seems to be really attractive about this is whether it can deal with that half of patients where we either get a benign, in inverted commas, label, mm-hmm. half of which will go on and develop malignancy in a year, or that indeterminate label, which is almost certainly cancer, but we probably don't have enough to necessarily go straight to surgery. So, like, if, if, you, can, if you can augment the diagnosis for those uh, and either have like a, a you know a more rapid follow-up test or a repeat or whatever it is that's actually you know that's massive for those patients because that period of uncertainty and often that delay for surgery is you know is, is really clinically important yeah yeah absolutely so I think I think it's really promising and a really useful pilot but obviously as you said um, it requires validation um, together with the other tests, um, um, but also in prospective studies with larger patient numbers, um, they need the, the population they look, I mean, this wasn't a controlled study and they hadn't powered it for 
a primary outcome. Um, they assess sensitivity and specificity, but they didn't uh, look at, you know, um, the uh, positive or negative predictive values or number ne numbers needed to treat um, or numbers needed to test in this case. Um, and in terms of the generalizability of the population they looked at, so it was a single centre in Spain, most of these patients had a distal stricture. Okay. Um, uh, and this actually matters um, basically because the distal strictures, especially if they're CCAs, have a broadly different mutational pro profile um, to intrahepatic ones. Um, and also the treatment options are often slightly different. Like yeah. It's easier to operate on a on a distal stricture than it is on an intrahepatic stricture. Plus, they mentioned that there wasn't a high proportion of PSC patients in their cohort, mm. for example. I, I couldn't tell from the table that they provided. They didn't say who had PSC and who didn't, but that also changes the mutational profile. So there's there's a few different things in that sense that could change the diagnostic accuracy of this. And then there, there are obviously some practical things to address, like is the technology scalable? Like ultimately at the moment, these tests are validated in a lab only, not in a clinical setting. Um, and uh, we would want it to be performed in a hospital lab um, in a sort of automated way. Um, would this actually impact on treatment? Um, because yes, it were, it, it's been shown in a minority of patients that it picks up certain mutations. But, um, you know, these cancers, because it requires a CRCP and because this ERCP is being um, prompted by clinical stuff plus imaging, you know, they're not, these patients aren't just rocking up for a surveillance ERCP. <laughs> um, will it actually diagnose it that much earlier? Uh, enough to make a difference. That's the key. Yeah. Will it diagnose it early enough, early enough that they could have surgery? But that's the key, and I and I don't know the answer to that. Um, and you do have to get, you do still have to have the ERCP, and some patients cannot have an ERCP for various reasons, um, who probably wouldn't be suitable for for surgery anyway, um, if they're not suitable for an ERCP for whatever reason. But nevertheless, it, it doesn't help those that particular group of patients. But certainly, it's um, it's promising. Yeah, no, it's 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 very much so. And interesting. Very much so. Yeah. Has anyone just tried sampling like small bowel contents? Because you know my my anatomy is not great, but even I am aware that the bile goes into the small bowel. Um, uh, it's a relatively straightforward plumbing. Um, but but you know you you can you could do an OGD. Um, you know, and you know, wang down a tube and aspirate aspirate some small bowel contents as long as you're distal to the um distal uh to the ampulla and and there'll be a bit of a bit of bile around mm. um yeah yeah that's possible i assume but it's a total assumption that you can't detect things in stool otherwise people would have looked just because presumably the dna is is degraded by the time you've um chugged through the rest of the gi tract I guess the other thing about um, doing both of those techniques is that, um, well, it's the same with plasma, isn't it? You, you, you'll pick up all sorts of mutations that might be 
due to a different tumour somewhere else in your colon, your stomach, whatever. You need some AI uh, to, to pick it up on your colonoscopy first before you do the stool test. Cool. That's re- it's really interesting. And it's, it's great. Sometimes, sometimes you see these sequencing papers um, and you go, that is absolutely lovely and that's super interesting and that is of no use to man or beast for, for mm. a while. But actually, this but I is... like this because it's it's tried it's trying to make it relevant to uh, clinical practice, and and I think there's enough evidence from this to go on to you know potentially do bigger trials uh, or development of the assay itself. Yeah, that's maybe a bit more targeted for for biliary tree malignancy. Yeah, so that's that one. So we've done colonoscopy, we've now done ERCP, albeit for strictures. So I've got I've got two more endoscopy papers. Okay, cool. Yeah. Go for it. Um so I've got we're now going on to uppers, now uppers for GI bleeding. So this was a paper in gut that I think is really interesting and I think it's quite cool technology. I have to say I'm slightly skeptical about this study. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and if any of the authors are amongst our, our you know, our, our small coterie of list listeners, um, I'd love to love to hear from you. Um, this is a trial that was in gut just a few weeks ago. Um, this uh, first author is Benjamin Meyer. This is a gr- German group. And the title of the paper is Over the Scope Clips versus Standard Treatment for High Risk Patients with Acute Non-Variceal Upper GI Bleeding, a Randomized Controlled Trial. The Sting 2 trial. It's a good name. Yeah, um, it's a good name. <laughs> Non-variceal upper GI bleeding is really common. So it's around 100 um, cases per 100,000 population in Europe and the US. And it's still associated with a pretty high mortality, somewhere in the region of 7 to 10%, depending on what studies you look at. Um, most of that is actually not driven by the bleeding itself, but the fact that the people who bleed are generally old frail, comorbid, and on anticoagulants. Um, now, the, the, uh, the, the major treatment for, um, uh, for non-variceal upper GI bleeding is um, endoscopic therapy, so diagnostic, endoscopic, uh, diagnostic endoscopy, and then um, endoscopic uh, therapy for hemostasis. And standard therapy for that is based on based on previous trials, pretty successful with um, rates of uh, hemostasis considerably greater than 90% in, in previous trials. And usually, as you know, we use dual therapy. So we inject in diluted adrenaline and then we either um, we either use mechanical hemostasis, we clip it uh, or we use um, uh, uh, coagulation thermal therapy. We burn it. So inject it, clip it and burn it. Um, but, um, we know that if you have insufficient hemostasis, so ongoing bleeding, then a repeat endoscopy is often unlikely to be successful. And then you need to have various types of salvage therapy. So you can either have an, uh, angiographic therapy, so interventional radiology treatments, um, or in some cases, surgical treatments. And I think the key thing is, is that those, um, those salvage therapies are associated with a greater mortality, whether that's because 
uh, of the procedure itself because of the cohort of patients it is or because the ongoing bleeding is, is is not entirely clear but the mortality is you know is higher sort of 10 to 30 percent now there is a sort of a new er clip uh, um, on the block which is the over the scope clip um, I have to say I've only actually ever seen one deployed once so I'm not sure I if have you've never seen, seen them they kind of look like a a bear trap one of those kind of comedy bear traps that you see in a, a cartoon with two big kind of jaws with claws on them that snap shut and they're sort of they're kind of sprung load and they snap shut and what you do is you put put effectively a cap which has the over the scope clip loaded in the open position on the top a little bit like a um a, a speed like a bander. bander yeah exactly yeah. and very much okay. like the bander there's a little little um thread or uh, uh so on that goes up the working channel of the scope and effectively you find whatever you want to uh what what to, want to bear bear trap um suck it up into your cap and then deploy this massive clap thing that that grabs grabs hold of it so over the, over the scope clips were developed by a company called Avesco, which are a German company, um, and they were originally developed for the closure of GI uh, fistulas and GI perforations. So the idea is you made a whacking great hole in the bowel, and then effectively you just close it, trying to reduce the uh, the the um, the need for for surgery for those kind of situations. But they have been increasingly used in case series and clinical trials for hemostasis um, in certain uh, situations because their their physical kind of reach their bite is um, is bigger than most standard clips and also the sheer kind of strength of them and the fact that they've got these ruddy great teeth that really kind of dig in means that you know in a kind of more sort of fibrotic setting you can kind of uh, oppose the edges of an ulcer and get that kind of that mechanical pressure on the vessel to allow it to uh, coagulate and stop bleeding so there have been some retrospective studies that have shown that they are in case controlled series um uh highly effective for um, the management of uh, severe upper GI bleeding in certain patient populations. However, it's unclear whether Ovesco, these over-the-scope clips, um, are a useful treatment as first line for high-risk non-variceal upper GI bleeds. And that's what this trial is trying to do. Okay. So... And is this still used with dual therapy? So if you use a no. bear clip, ah, uh, okay. not necessarily. Okay. Um, but I think, I think most of these patients, yeah. So they injected adrenaline for most of these patients. Okay. Uh, in okay. that arm. Um, so this trial, the Sting Two trial, there was a Sting One. I have to. I've, I've forgotten what Sting One was presumably the same thing but in a different cohort uh, so sting 2 was in 13 academic referral centers in germany so this is all in germany and in each center there was only one or two endoscopists so this is a little bit different from the previous trial so we've got effectively a whole clinical trial and you could probably get them around a small table uh, all of the endoscopists who were doing these procedures um, and they were all highly experienced in the management of upper GI bleeding. And there's an interesting line. They are all highly experienced in the application of over-the-scope clips. 
greater than 20 over the scope clips per year. So that means they use them normally. They, they are using them normally. <laughs> and I would say that they are converts for it. And it is interesting to look at the competing interest statement, because although this was not funded by the company, uh, several authors are either consultants for Avesco, have received fees for Avesco or anything like that. So um, these, these people are converts to the technology, um, which comes into relevance later. So these are all participants who were hospitalized for acute non-variceal upper GI bleeding. They had the endoscopy. They were consented for the trial before they had the endoscopy. And then they were included in the trial at basically during the endoscopy. So what they did is they did the endoscopy and then they did the complete Rockle score. So including the endoscopic elements of the Rockle score. And if they had a Rockle score, a complete Rockle score of seven or greater, then they met the criteria. And then the little envelope was opened and they were randomized to one of two arms, standard therapy or a VESCO. Okay. Yeah. So that was the plan. Um, I mean, you wouldn't do that in real life, would you? But okay. Well, open you know. a little envelope halfway through your endoscopy. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you might do that. Just got some letters. I just need to need to see, work through my correspondence. Please hold the scope. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, um, no, no, no. Calculate the ruffle, but um, no, uh, yeah, yeah. true. Uh, no, but it's fair. It's a trial. No, they need to do that. No, but sense. effectively, they are. You know, they're assessing the forest score. These are people who've got a forest one or or. Uh, uh, one or two way so effectively they've either got uh, actively bleeding uh, uh, actively bleeding ulcer or they have got a uh, visible vessel in the presence of clot okay so they, they, these are sort of high high risk bleeds that we need to intervene in and they've got a rockle of seven or more there are a couple of things that are worth noting they were not allowed to use a couple of other potential treatments so in particular, they were not allowed to, to use hemopray, hemospray, uh, uh, topical <laughs> therapies that we've discussed in a previous... Can't call it that anymore. Uh, we can't call it because it was a great trial, wasn't it? It, it works really well, which again, I think comes up into, in, into relevance here. Um, so uh, they weren't allowed to use topical therapies like hemospray. Um, and they said that for ethical reasons people were allowed to cross over between the arms if they, if hemostasis was not achieved. And I'm, I'm not sure I desperately agree with that. But that's, that's interesting. That's what the trial, that's because, what the trial says. You know, that, I presume they mean cross over to having a bear clip if the rest hasn't worked. Yeah. 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 You're, no. you're seeing where this is going, Tamsin. Cool. So there were some... There were some uh, some power calculations in which they've ended up with a made-up made up number of people that they're going to put in their trial. So assessed 246 uh, patients, um, and uh, 100 of those were randomised. So most of them didn't meet uh, meet the criteria for it because um, either they couldn't they couldn't get consent, or when they did the procedure, they didn't have severe enough bleeding and didn't meet the criteria. So that's fine. Um, so they randomised them uh, roughly one-to-one, -one, so standard group 52 and over-the-scope clip 48. Um, and then they... Uh, and all of the ones who were randomised are included in the analysis, which is good. The primary endpoint of this study was clinical success. 
so clinical hemostasis um, from the uh, as decided by the managing endoscopist so endoscopist opens the envelope goes either standard therapy or bear clip and then they apply their therapy and then they decide whether there was clinical success or not so um, and the outcome was that in the standard therapy arm uh, 38 of the patients had um, uh, um, uh, clinical success which is only 73 percent only 73 percent which is low that is a low number compared to previous studies of standard dual therapy and in the over the scope clip arm it was 44 patients uh, with a clinical success rate of 91.7 percent so 92 percent um, so it sounds like quite a big difference, 73% compared to 92%. Big difference in that. But first, the 73% is quite low. And second, actually, that only corresponds to six patients. Six patients difference between the two arms. And in those six patients, the endoscopist, having applied a couple of clips of the, the of standard therapy, has decided that the therapy is not working and has switched to the Ovesco, which... In all six of them, uh, provided hemo instant hemostasis. So um, I'm trying to put this in a very diplomatic way. There is an element of subjectivity by the endoscopist to decide that they've done enough standard therapy and that uh, there is now not hemostasis. And then they've switched over to the other, other therapy. Um, that is the key significant results in this. In terms of re-bleeding rates, there was a um, there was a non-significant trend for increased recurrent bleeding within the first seven days um, uh, in the standard of therapy group. So eight patients re-bled compared to four patients. So fifteen percent compared to eight patients, eight uh, percent. But that was not significant. However, um, there were two delayed bleeds in the over the scope clip arm and it gets slightly convoluted about uh, re-bleeding and different interventions but I think that the only person who actually ended up going for surgery for ongoing bleeding was in the over the scope clip group. Um, the, in terms of like you know big headline um, you know the things that people really care about like dying um, there was no difference in overall 30-day mortality between the two arms. It was around 7%. So that's uh, to me, interesting. Have they picked the wrong? Have they picked the wrong primary outcome? Um, I don't know. It is a proxy difficult. outcome. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm just thinking um, out loud. Yeah. No. I, I. I think you're. I think you are spot on. So. I agree with you that I think that this is a proxy endpoint that makes a certain amount of sense, but one isn't actually what patients care about. They care about whether they keep on bleeding over the following days and then that leads to them either requiring something else or them having some kind of bad outcome. But also yeah. it is an outcome that is a, a subjective measure. Very subjective. And it's exactly. not like there was a sort of a central reader or somebody who... Um, who decided and made that an call. independent person who yeah. who decided that so there's a bit of judgment there 
And these people are proponents of this treatment, otherwise they wouldn't be doing this study and they wouldn't be doing 20 over-the-scope clips a year each. So these are people who think that it works well and therefore are probably likely to lean towards it in certain circumstances. I think there are a couple of other things here. Um, I am concerned that the clinical success rate in the standard arm was only 73%, because first, that doesn't tally with other trials of dual therapy, which suggests it's well over the 90%. And what's interesting is that um, they pretty much only used clips. So this pretty much, I think there was one patient who ended up getting a little bit of burny with the, with the heater probe. Pretty much everybody had had clips um, rather than adrenaline, and that included what? So um, single therapy, not dual therapy? No, sorry, no. So they had adrenaline plus clips. Yeah, but but very few people had thermal therapy, and that interested me because there were sixteen or seventeen ulcers that were over twenty millimeters wide, and my experience is that big old 20 or 30 millimeter ulcers are nigh on impossible to close with um, standard standard clips you either need to get those giant ultra clips um, or you need to or you need to burn so um, I wonder about those 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 cases I think mm. the other one is is that they weren't allowed any hemostatic powders and actually mm. as a if we're thinking about somebody who may have some ongoing ooze after you've applied partial standard therapy, actually you might well convert to a hemospray hemo and um, and add that on and get hemostasis. Um, yeah. So, and I guess that would be part of standard of care at the moment, um, although that's not sort of guideline-based, um, but it would be an alternative that people would... Um, would use so are there any adverse out, out adverse outcomes or reasons uh not to use a bear clip in in those cases rather than hemospray apart from the lack of evidence so not in this trial so i think i, I think the thing is, is that these are actually pretty safe things however i have seen some case reports and i've also seen some presentations where people have talked about complications from them uh, most obviously perforation so you've got like a thinned duodenal ulcer um, and you put on this whacking great thing over your your fibrotic ulcer and you just just go through and you've you've perforated them um, so there are potential complications about it um, I think it's a really interesting trial and I think they've um, I think they've tried to answer a question about whether this should be standard of care or whether it is an a suitable alternative for standard of care um, and I think I think you could argue that it is an alternative to standard of care like in this trial it seems to work um, I am not convinced however with the statement that it is superior to standard of care because of the caveats mm -hmm. um, the caveats raised um, from people I, I don't know many people who've used it but from hearing presentations where people do and speaking to a couple of people who have used them in, um, there are certain situations where um, they could be really useful for bleeding. So particularly if you've got a large ulcer that you can't just physically get any kind of clip around, um, and particularly if it's got a bigger vessel that you're not, you're a bit worried about, you know, touching with the heater probe, 
um, actually getting a big old clip over it sounds a lot of sense. Um, and also, if you're rescoping someone and standard therapy has failed, particularly for one of those bigger ulcers, then that's maybe a nice alternative to prevent people go to angiography. Um, and then, you know, maybe in very safe areas in terms of putting on a whacking great clip, so like a stomach a stomach bleed, particularly if you can't yeah. accurately localise exactly where it's coming from, um, like an odd Dulafoy lesion or something like that, maybe just grabbing it with one of these massive things might work well. So I think this is an interesting trial, and I don't think it's answered my question, which is where does a VESCO, where do these over-the-scope clips fit into um, to the therapeutic um, uh, sort of armamentarium? Uh, I think you could argue that they're an alternative, um, but I think it's probably a bit more complex than that. And I'm not sure in this trial they'd be any better than standard therapy plus hemospray if initial hemostasis doesn't work. Yeah, thank you. That was another really interesting trial. So thank you for bringing that one as well. Brilliant. Shall I do one more endoscopy one? Because this is quite quick. Yeah, go for and it. It's on a... Okay, and, and now for something completely different. Um, this is also in gut. Oh, so many guts. Gut focus today. <laughs> yeah. um, three in a row. Um, so this is a bit off-piste. Estimating the environmental impact of disposable endoscopic equipment and endoscopes. This is good, though, that we're thinking about this now. Really good. I do. And there's a there's an awesome movement in the in the UK. Um, and um, uh, there's a gastroenterologist in um, at King's, uh, um, Hussein Bouai, um, who has been involved in setting up this sort of green endoscopy group uh, as part of the BSG, which I think is brilliant to start to think about how we can make uh, positive environmental changes in healthcare. Yeah, I think it's because great. Because healthcare is, according to this paper at least, uh, responsible for 4.4% of total greenhouse gas emissions and 8% within the U- uh, the USA. Ugh. We are rubber. We are terrible. Like, think of all the disposable stuff. Think of all the plastic. Yeah. I know. The there's, heating. A, there's a lot of rubbish that we do yeah there's a, there's a lot of rubbish we generate and in the usa we also probably do far too many procedures in the us um 18 million endoscopies performed each year um and a lot of the kit we use is um single use and disposable mm, yeah now you may well remember that there were a run of people who got really horrible um cholangitis with resistant organisms from contaminated duodenoscopes a few years ago Mm, I don't, but no? anyway, yes. So there was this run of like people who got horrible, like carbapenemase producing, you know, enterococcus, horrible, horrible bugs. And they were being transmitted um, because of inadequate cleaning of the bridge of the duodenoscope. And because of that, and concerns about infection transmission and things like CJD and things like that, um, uh, Companies have started manufacturing single-use endoscopes, and the FDA has recently approved them. Ooh. So endoscopes for um, uh, for gastroscopy, colonoscopy, du- duodenoscopy. Um, I've seen adverts for cystoscopes. Um, this is uh, a bit of a movement, and from the drug and from the sorry from the uh, manufacturers, it's a win-win um, money-wise. Uh, this is this <laughs> is a good line of business to encourage. So, um, uh, and so despite the absolute risks of, ho- of endoscope 
um, acquired infection being like no, tiny in the, in the one per millions mm. um, there is a bit of a move towards I that. mean I do feel and the NHS will never be able to afford that so from our well, you say that <laughs> but the, the nice thing about it is you buy a whole load of single-use stuff and then what you do is you sack all your staff who are cleaning oh, the endoscopes yeah. Oh, yeah. so that. Um, mm. you know it's it's um, for some departments there is a financial thing. You can ask, argue about the um, the ethics about this and about the short-sightedness about sacking um, staff, but that's often how I think it's sold to departments, that, hey, move all single-use and then you don't have to have any of your, um, your processing decon staff. You can just get rid of that unit because, hey, you're just chucking it away afterwards. Um, so what this study did... Um, actually, this was just a really nice basically an audit um and uh, uh they published it in gut so well done them i love this um basically they audited two centers a high volume endoscopy center and a low volume endoscopy center for a week in 2020 uh just before the pandemic and they then used their audit data and measuring all of the rubbish that was generated from those uh, from the procedures in those two hospitals to work out how much trash does endoscopy make and so um, there's a whole load of methods about how they calculated the um, uh, the amount of uh, rubbish that's all generated and so they've generated they've calculated this on the base of 278 endoscopies performed in this five-day period at these two hospitals and those 278 endoscopic procedures filled 190 20 gallon waste bins and generated 619 kilos of rubbish of which two-thirds of which was destined for the landfill another 17 percent of it was biohazard waste that was uh, headed for um, incineration um, uh, and it's not good is it the vast majority of it was not recycled. yeah i was going to say nothing was recycled yeah, yeah that sounds so the average right. scope produced 2.1 kilos of waste and filled half a waste bin um and these are standard one these are standard scopes not not um single use scopes um so basically we make a lot of rubbish so they then calculated based on the 18 million endoscopic procedures performed in the u.s each year that the US fills 11 million waste bins and generates approximately 38,000 metric tonnes of rubbish each year which would cover 117 soccer fields in a metre of rubbish and um, is equivalent to the weight of uh, around 25,000 cars mm. so that's, that's nice that's... <laughs> We, we, it's a bit depressing. We generate, so we already, we already generate an inordinate amount of rubbish from doing it. Yeah. Um, they've then estimated what would happen if we switched to single-use endoscopes. And if you did it for all single-use endoscopes, so colonoscopes, gastroscopes and duodenoscopes, you would increase the amount of rubbish by 40%. If you just did it for colonoscopes and duodenoscopes you would increase it by 25%. So we're going to make a whole load more rubbish. So if you calculate it, you will do this. So that's an extra kilo of rubbish for every endoscope. It's a big difference. 
And that's not including the costs of making it, the costs of the raw materials, um, uh, some of which are not not recyclable, um, and and uh, and all of that. And that's that, you know, and they've calculated and and factored in the kind of decon and re reprocessing uh, things. So, I mean, I I feel pretty strongly that, you know, we should push push back against single use endoscopes yeah it sounds like um, that's not or a good from an environmental point of view, point of view yeah. except in situations where there is clearly uh, a, a, an infection control risk um you know this seems to be a a no-brainer um and i think we need to push back against companies that are i think trying to exploit a um uh, a line of argument about patient safety which i think is not really justified and we need to um, really consider you... on a wider level not just in endoscopy but in clinical practice in general about moving towards using less waste moving towards recycling things and you know yeah because there's so much waste generated that we could do better and the other thing that um uh that they mentioned right at the back which actually i think is much more important is that I think we should start to factor in not just kind of clinical harm in terms of when we when we arrange um, scopes and thinking mm. about the patient the risk benefit but environmental thing harm for the as patient well. is the fact that we're spending a whole load of you know the government's money in an NHS system yeah and we're also using some of Earth's valuable resources for that procedure and there is no doubt that we do a whole load of scopes that if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with the patients have pretty pretty borderline indications yeah absolutely and, you know um so do less do less tests yeah. is the best way to make your tests um more environmentally friendly and then the second one is don't use a don't use a, a single use endoscope um if at all possible yes we do need to think about all of these things um and just the fact that it's starting to come into our consciousness as clinicians now I think is a really good thing. So I've got two more but I know you've got a couple of patient papers but I am going to try and be really really quick with these so I'll let you do your ones and then I'll whiz through these two. A while ago I discussed a modelling paper about minimum unit pricing um, and how that might impact on various different health but also um, broader social outcomes if it were applied in England. Um, so th this, I'm sort of going back to that a little bit, um, this pa paper or report anyway is um, from or commissioned by the Public Health Scotland and it's entitled Evaluating the Impact of Minimum Unit Pricing in Scotland on People Who Are Drinking at Harmful Levels um, and this was published on the 7th of, of June this year. Um, so it's not um, in a peer-reviewed paper. Um, it, it's it's um, 210 pages long. I didn't read all of it, um, but I did read quite a bit of it, actually, and it was really interesting and um, definitely changed my view about minimum unit pricing and perhaps what the evidence says about it, um, because obviously as a sort of lefty hepatologist i'm like yeah minimum unit pricing great we need to get people to drink less but is it impacting on the people we want it to impact the most so um 
quick background, I think most people know this, so minimum unit price for a unit of alcohol in Scotland was introduced on the 1st of May 2018. So the minimum price for a unit of alcohol in Scotland is 50p. Um, and one unit of alcohol is 10 mils or 8 grams of pure ethanol. This policy does have a sunset clause, so that means that six years after it started, so 2024, um, this policy will expire unless the Scottish Parliament votes for it to continue, hence why Public Health Scotland has commissioned quite a few different studies to evaluate its um, impact. Um, so this uh, piece of work was um, specifically targeted at, at the population of people that drink at harmful levels and including people with alcohol dependence in Scotland and this is a specific group of people. So the definition in the UK of somebody that drinks at a harmful level is um, a person uh, that drinks more than 35 units a week if you're a woman or more than 50 units a week if you're a man. Um, and within that group, one in five of them will be um, classified as being alcohol dependent. So they have a physical um, or and or psychological dependence on alcohol. And these, this particular group are, you know, most at risk of poor health outcomes from alcohol high alcohol consumption um, and also uh, some of the other social um, negative outcomes that go hand in hand with it. So the intervention was obviously the introduction of the minimum unit price um, and I'll talk about the, the different outcomes they looked at but um, some of the outcomes they looked at when there was no control group just because of the nature of the methods used um, but where there was uh, quantitative work done they did use control populations in northern England um, uh, as, a, as a control. So there were four work packages so these are the outcomes they looked at. One was to look at the impact of the minimum unit pricing on people who use alcohol treatment services specifically. Um, with harmful um, with harmful drinking, so they had to be in touch with that those services. Work package two looked at the impact of it um, in the community, um, and that included on uh, looking at families and carers of people that uh, lived with those that drink at harmful levels. And both of these work packages used um, uh, so qualitative method, methods so work package one used qualitative interviews with service users that use the alcohol treatment services but also some quantitative surveys and work package two used interviews and focus groups with uh, people with alcohol dependence and their families and carers then work package three which i'll focus on a bit more because it's the probably the more interesting one is uh, looked at the impact of the minimum unit price on harmful drinking in the general population. So that's looking at does the prevalence of harmful drinking change after um, minimum unit pricing is introduced and does the, um, the consumption patterns of alcohol change after minimum unit pricing in this particular group. Work package 4 wasn't completed but it aimed to um, look at the impact on uh, within primary care. It aimed to analyse a data set of linked electronic GP hospital and death records, but um, 
as with previous IT projects in the NHS, um, it sounds like that linkage uh, didn't work out, and so that hasn't hasn't been completed yet. Um, so the headline findings really um, are from. I'll start with the work package three. So the consumption patterns. So after minimum unit pricing was introduced, there is evidence that um, people with alcohol dependence are paying more for alcohol. So the cost for them has gone up from about 49p to about 59p per unit. And that's in line with other studies that have looked at the population level, so not just people with alcohol dependence, but the population level, um, people are paying more for their alcohol, as you would imagine. Um, however, the prevalence of drinking at harmful levels did not change significantly after the minimum unit pricing was introduced. And um, that was a key, a key kind of uh, uh, wish of the Scottish government by introducing this policy is that actually by introducing a minimum unit pricing that it should impact and reduce people, the number of people drinking at harmful levels because they're the people that are often paying um, buying cheap alcohol with that is high percentage, so it should impact them more than people that drink at lower levels. Now, the data set they used to um, evaluate this was a, um, a a market survey, and this market survey um, used individual level data on alcohol consumption over a ten-year period, and they used an interrupted time series design, and um, the control in this case was the same data but from individuals from northern England. It's a commercial market research survey, it's continuously collected, it's cross-sectional, it's um, adults that are resident in Great Britain and they survey about 30,000 individuals a year and they have a weekly quota sample based on age, sex, social status and where they live in the UK. And the nature of the data they collect is that um, the participants first answer questions on their typical alcohol-related behaviours and alcohol-related attitudes, and then they complete a one-week retrospective drinking diary. And so you get an idea of how often they're drinking, what they're drinking, how much they're drinking. And this has been collected for a long time. Um, and so they used diary data that include, you know, from the 1st of May 2018, anything after that was post MU, post minimum unit pricing data, and um, before that was pre. And the number of individuals was the it was massive. So, um, 38,000 plus individuals in Scotland, so that's an average of 267 people a month filling in this survey over the time. And in Northern England, 71,000 people average 494 a month. Um, and, and so they looked at, um, using these diaries, they looked at how much people were consuming um, to define whether they were drinking at a harmful level or not, i.e. over 35 or over 50 units per week. And that's how they worked out that the prevalence of drinking at harmful levels in the last week, based on the survey, didn't change significantly after the introduction of minimum unit pricing. 
they did look at some other um, groups that don't fall into that harmful uh, level. So there's another definition of people that drink at hazardous levels. And these are people that drink above 14 units a week, but below 35 or 50. And the proportion of people drinking at that level did fall significantly between um, 2017 and 2018, so pre and post, by 3.5%. And the people drinking at moderate levels um, didn't, didn't change significantly, but increased a bit. So it suggests that people drinking at hazardous levels fell and they just started drinking a bit less, maybe as an impact, maybe impacted by the minimum unit price. There's some evidence of a switch from high percentage lager to, um, in, or cider to spirits, but it wasn't significant. And there was no significant impact on the variation in prevalence or consumption patterns between herbal, urban and rural areas. Um, now, this is different. These findings are very different to what I thought they would find, and also what some other studies have found. Um, so I looked into this a bit more to understand perhaps why. So the previous studies that have been published looking at the minimum unit price of alcohol in Scotland have used similar um, time series analysis data to what these authors used, but they've used a different um, type of um, data set. So they've looked at household level data on alcohol purchasing rather than individual level data. Okay. And that's really the difference. So <clears throat> there's been several different studies since the introduction of minimum unit pricing that have all looked at household level data and found that alcohol purchasing has decreased at the population level in Scotland since the introduction of minimum unit pricing and that households that um, are in the top kind of sort of fifth so 20 the top 20 percent of households that buy the most alcohol have been most affected have have reduced their alcohol spend um, or the amount of alcohol they buy the most but it doesn't tell you within that household how much someone's drinking it doesn't say how many people are drinking at a hazardous level a moderate level or a, or a harmful level who are alcohol dependent and in that household you know is it one person in that household that drinks like that is it all of the adults in that household that drink like that so this data set is diff quite different and quite it's important because it's looking at slightly different data um, and I think all of it needs to be looked at together in, in context. With the other work packages, the outcomes that they looked at, I thought were really interesting and important as well. So um, they were more mixed method studies, qualitative, um, and looking at um, how individuals, for example, how minimum unit pricing had impacted on the daily lives of people who um, drink at harmful levels. So. They found there was evidence of increased financial strain in mm. in many, and the coping mechanisms that people used to account for these in, the increased prices were um, that they'd used before were intensified. So they bought less food, 
they spent less money on gas and electricity, they borrowed money from friends and family and pawnbrokers and things like that, they relied on food banks. Um, but there were there are obviously unrelated factors that were occurring during this period that may have also impacted that. So, I mean, right now we've got lots of inflation and, and things in the economy, but there was a reduction in universal credit and that might have also contributed. Um, uh, there was no substantial evidence of that people within this group um, substituted alcohol uh, for uh, illicit drugs or that there was increased stealing or violence or alcohol-related crimes and no increase in acute alcohol withdrawal. But um, there was some, some evidence in from from the carers and the family members that... Uh, some of the some of the people with alcohol dependence or or um, harmful use actually switched to spirits, um, and they were more fearful of violence towards carers and family members. But there wasn't any um, quantitative evidence of that. And then, of course, the health side of things wasn't really analysed um, in this particular study. So. I thought this was really interesting because it looked at um, a specific population of people that were really interested in what their outcomes are to minimum unit pricing in Scotland because actually they're where the money is, they're at the highest risk of um, uh, negative impacts of alcohol dependence or um, harmful drinking. Um, and but there are obviously some limitations and there are several explanations as to why their findings might be a little bit different uh, to previous studies. So the methodological Im limitations obviously include non-random sampling and survey data, um, which is uh, notoriously um, often uh, not, not very accurate. Um, and some of the work packages looked at particular populations within that group of alcohol dependents so they had to be in touch with you know alcohol services for example and so they're missing lots of people there um, and it also required uh, it also was heavily relied on data from people drinking at harmful levels that um, only participated in that online market research panel so I bet there's a whole load of people that do not do that and therefore yeah. weren't captured in this um, so the way they interpreted the sort of main main findings, well, the first thing is they might have the findings might have underestimated the effect of minimum unit pricing on the consumption of alcohol in this particular population. Um, it differs from other published data, as I've already talked about the household data, um, and modelling studies is the other thing to talk about they consistently and I know they're modelling not real world studies but they consistently model that there'll be a positive impact of minimum unit pricing on alcohol consumption particularly in these groups that um, drink the most uh, at harmful levels um, but equally Another argument is that people with alcohol dependence might be less responsive and probably are less responsive to price changes than lighter drinkers, um, particularly if they're dependent, not just harmful drinkers, because they've got a physiological, um, psychological, physical um, mm. uh, addiction, essentially, to alcohol. So, you know, they will put alcohol consumption 
above eating and uh, buying fuel and all of those things. Um, it might be that the minimum unit price is too low, therefore, to um, have, a, have the impact we want it to have on the people that are drinking at that high level. Um, and they also commented on, um, you know, those management strategies that uh, people seem to be using um, to offset that increased price in alcohol might not be very sustainable, mm. um, especially in the current economic climate. You know, um, how long can you know? They're all they're all short term solutions um, that might not. And actually, longer term, it might be that people do change their behaviour, and it also might be that um, it might encourage people who are younger that would have become um, hazardous or uh, sorry harmful drinkers to not drink to that level. So it hasn't looked at that particular group, um, and also the other important thing, and I guess the most interesting thing for us is it hasn't evaluated this particular report hasn't evaluated evaluated health effects um a few other reports have touched on it um but in terms is, of admissions or yeah a, exactly ED attendances with alcohol yeah. related problems or injuries or alcoholic yeah. hepatitis exactly right yeah. i mean the the public health source of scotland do plan to undertake um health outcome yeah. analysis so that should come um there will be a final over overarching report next June about um, okay. all the different things that they've reported. Um, the other thing that will muddy the water, obviously, here is COVID, because oh, that did change said it. things. You said it, Tamsin. We almost got through a whole episode. I know. I'm sorry. No, okay. But um, so, so I just... I, I just thought it was really interesting um, so, I mean, to look I, at because I kind of thought, oh yeah, minimum unit pricing, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I but think it was, very it was sold as a bit of a panacea because it's, I think the the modelling data that it was a really it's a bit of a silver silver bullet. And, yeah. Um, you know, and it's it, it's um, you know the Royal College of Physicians, you know, health inequalities and. Uh, um, policy you know includes support for minimum unit pricing and um as as do as do many others and um it will be interesting to see the kind of the real world effects hopefully trying to convolve try sorry trying to control for uh, covid and other other parallel effects but uh yeah actually this is a, this is a slightly slightly depressing outcome actually because i was rather hoping that this was going to show yeah. really I know really dramatic it wasn't it wasn't what I was um, expecting, but um, yeah, really, really interesting. And I'll definitely look out for the further reports that are going to be published in the next uh, year Work or so. Work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I've got a short, mildly depressing one, and then I've got a positive one to end on. Great. Okay. That's. That's good. As long as we end on a positive, that's fine. Yeah. So, slight negative one is a commentary. Uh, a commentary in gastroenterology by uh, Lauren and Danielle Rabinovich. They are from Harvard. Ooh. Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the Boston Children's Hospital. This is a paper about 
the disparities in inclusion of female pregnant lactating and older individuals in IBD clinical trials. Um, and uh, this is a, a nice a nice little read and I like the way they did the study. Um, so inclusion is really important. It is a priority for the National Institutes of Health, Health the NIH in the US, who have specifically said that they want um, uh, health, you know, medical medical trials and health research to include groups that have historically been excluded from that, including women, children, older adults, and members of racial and ethnic minority groups. Um, and it's really important in the context of clinical trials because we want to know that the results of those clinical trials are generalizable to the populations that we serve. Um, and Crohn's disease is an interesting one because um, it's not it's a heterogeneous population which includes some of those uh, some of those harder to reach um, uh, populations. So there is a female preponderance um, in IBD overall, um, uh, more so in Crohn's than UC. Um, but you know overall um, overall fifty five percent of uh, people with IBD are, are female um, and IBD affects a whole range of ages so this 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 um, commentary isn't about pediatrics but clearly there's a considerable number of kids with IBD who are often excluded uh, from from trials that focus just on adults but we also have that bimodal age distribution and we are increasingly diagnosing people later in life with de novo IBD, as well as having patients who've had IBD for a long time and are now entering their latter years. But 10 to 15% of new diagnoses of IBD are in the over 60s. Yeah. So this study was looking at the um, effectively how representative clinical trials were. Um, oh, and the other group that um, importantly are often excluded are are pregnant women and uh, women who are breastfeeding, um, and we know that this this um, this group is quite large, quite important, and we have lots of our IVD patients who are either pregnant or are interested in becoming pregnant. Mm, um, indeed. And uh, so, this study, they looked just they looked at um, uh, clinicaltrials.gov at all IVD trials registered in a twenty year period up to. June the 30th, 2020. And they found 146 trials that met their criteria. And then they went through the demographic data and compared it to the US population data. So basically, do US IBD trials match the US population? And spoiler alert, they don't. Um, so, <laughs> so 146 trials, uh, 50,000 participants, pediatric and adult most of these are industry funded because most of these are therapeutic drug trials although there were a few other like fmt trials or device trials um so 80 percent industry funded and 75 percent are phase two or phase three trials so these are the key registration trials upon which you know the, the key data upon which we then decide how we use these 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 drugs yeah, so, and then we use them in all sorts of different populations. Yeah, but these are, you know, these are these are the key results. Um, so, women, um, total trial participants, 
Um, and this has included all the paediatric trials as well. Uh, 51.6 were female, so quite similar. Uh, but when we look at adult studies, um, female patients comprised 54.6% of Crohn's disease trials, but only 44% of UC trials, so slightly under-representing uh, women compared to um, uh, kind of, you know, the known IBD frequency um, in, in the US. Um, pregnant or lactating women were excluded from over 60% of the trials, you know, off the bat. Um, but what's also of relevance there is that even when they were um, allowed to be included, they often don't have they data. They weren't. Um, well, they, well, they either weren't, but also it's not possible to tell. So there's no subgroup analysis for those pa patients. So it's often, even if they, they don't seem to be a formal exclusion criteria, you then don't have the data that you can kind of pull out to say, ah, there were, you know, three you know breastfeeding women in this group and uh, and you know what that this was their outcomes um so when we start thinking um we've got 10 to 15 percent of ibd patients uh diagnosed with their ibd over 60 um but uh of the 105 trials in adults the mean age is relatively low which which is i guess what you would expect so in crohn's disease the median age was 37 uh, and you see it was uh, it was 42 um only 39 percent of trials included patients over 65 years old so a whole load of trials just excluded them off the bat but even where they were included they often made up a small minority of of the um the patients in the trial and so overall if we look at all crohn's disease trials in this cohort um less than one percent of patients were over 65 and in the uc trials uh, less than four percent and this is so important actually because you know we we don't have the data for these patients these older patients and yet a lot of our clinical decision making is especially for biologics and things like that is based on oh you know, they're over a certain age or have lots of comorbidities, let's not give them, let's give them veto. Yeah, yeah so, we, so we we infer risk. Yeah, um, but it's not actually evidence But it's actually based. not, yeah, it's not from, it's not from a great deal of clinical trial data. It's like, oh, they're at higher risk of, for instance, cancer or heart failure related to anti-TNF, let's say. But actually, a lot of these trials are excluding these patients off the bat because yeah. of so, those risks so, so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy so you don't include them because you haven't got the data about them but the reason you don't have the data about them is because you didn't include them so yes. uh yeah this is a problem and then we come on to uh to race and ethnicity and in these trials so this is a u.s population so a bit different from the uk um u.s trials overall We've got nearly somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of um, trial participants are white, um, uh, depending on how you stratify it into uh, Crohn's or UC. But uh, only 76 percent of the US population is is white. The the populations that are underrepresented, in particular, are those of Black and African American uh, um, nationality, which make up. 
um, more like 13% uh, of, of the US and they, they only make up about 3% um, in these trials. Uh, Hispanic communities are also uh, lower and I don't even think they were able to delineate populations like you know South Asian descent or um, uh, First Peoples and you know Pacific Islanders and 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 so this on. This is poor. This is so, so poor. Yeah, so isn't it? And you know, not surprising, sadly. It's not. It's it's not at all. And you know they haven't actually gone on to to look at this, but I I don't even think they've scratched the surface in terms of thinking then no. about socio-economic status. And I have you know no doubt that there is disparities um, along along those lines there. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it, it, it's a little bit of a depressing kind of outcome. Uh, you know, I, I think if we were grading, grading IBD clinical trials in the US, I think we would say, you know, in terms of inclusion, four out of 10 could do better. Um, yeah. we, we really need to make an effort to include these groups. And if there are reasons not to include them, I think, you know, that needs to be looked at quite carefully and... The default should not be, oh, let's just exclude all old people and let's exclude women because they might get pregnant and muck up our stats. Like those yeah. those are not good reasons to exclude people from trials yeah. and it perpetuates health inequalities. And I suspect this is true of not just the IBD field, but much, you know, the wider medical field. And it reflects wider society. It's indeed, indeed. I don't think, you know, his gastroenterology is a microcosm of society. No. Um, right, happy news, only take a few minutes. And also a positive paper. Positive, positive paper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this paper is called Terzepatide Once Weekly for the Treatment of Obesity. So... Uh, terzepatide is a drug that I find incredibly difficult to say, um, but <laughs> is, is the main thing. Um, so obesity is bad, and unfortunately, most of the US and and Europe are overweight or obese. But we've had a couple of really exciting trials. We've spoken about one um, that came out a few months ago um, on this podcast before of semaglutide, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And that demonstrated um, uh, some really nice efficacy uh, for um, for weight loss, I think in the region of sort of 12 to 14% body weight lost after a bit over a year on the drug, which was pretty amazing and is much better than previous drugs. It comes yeah. with some problems, particularly things like um, uh, gallbladder-related uh, complications and, and pancreatitis, as well as a variety of GI side effects. Uh, terzepatide is, um, uh, it's quite cool, it's a peptide. Um, it's a sort of, um, it's, it's engineered from the native um, GI, um, GIP sequence, and it's an agonist both for GIP receptors, but also GLP-1 receptors. So it's targeting both the GLP-1 pathway, but also the GIP uh, sort of gut hormone pathway. And it is licensed for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, I think. Well, it's certainly been used in trials for type 2 diabetes. I am not a diabetologist. Um, anyway, this is a phase 3 multi-center double-blind randomized controlled trial in 119 sites, 9 countries, in adults 
who have a BMI of 30 or more, or 27 if they've got complications. So this is including people who are very overweight and obese, but also people who are sort of on the kind of borderline overweight slash obese, but with some dyslipidemia or um, cardiovascular disease. Okay. Yeah. This was not a trial including people with diabetes. They were excluded and they were randomized one to one to one to one to either placebo or three different doses of this drug that I cannot say and um uh as an adjunct as an adjunct to the drug therapy they were given lifestyle interventions so they had regular lifestyle counseling sessions they saw a dietitian they were um helped with a healthy balanced diet with a calorie deficit of 500 kilocalories a day and they were also incentivized to exercise for 150 minutes of physical activity a week so basically we did all of the right things and then we either gave them the drug or not for 72 weeks okay so quite a long time as well that's decent yeah. so the co-primary endpoints were the percentage in body weight change from baseline to week 72 and also the proportion of people who had lost a certain increment of weight and the key one that's become the, one of the key metrics in these trials is losing more than 5% of your body weight. Mm -hmm. um, there's two reasons for that. One is that basically all uh, trials of any kind of kind of conventional lifestyle therapy have um, have deltas of less than that. People lose less than 5% over a year on average. And two, that seems to be associated with tangible benefits in terms of blood pressure, cardiovascular risk, fatty liver disease, blah, 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 blah. So, overall, this is a really well-powered study. They had 2,539 participants, 86% adherence to the therapy, and the demographics were much as they planned. These people have a mean BMI of um, 38. They're sort of 105 kilos, um, and they have, you know, some... 40% had pre-diabetes at baseline. Um the results are stonking, absolutely stonking. Um, so in the placebo arm, after a year, the percentage uh, body weight, the mean percentage body weight is minus 3%. So people lost 3% of their body weight. Mm -hmm. In the terzepatide arms, uh, particularly in the 10 and 15 milligram arms, so the two higher doses, mm -hmm. they lost... 19.5 and 20.9 percent wow that's massive that's, so that's massive, just the mean that's the mean so Great. then when we start looking at the people who've lost five percent ten percent fifteen percent twenty percent within that time so basically in the two top doses the 10 or 15 milligram doses 90 percent of people are losing five percent body weight um well that's really uh, 80 percent are losing 10 percent body weight um two-thirds are losing 15 percent and you know as you would expect mm. half are losing 20 percent of their body weight by the end of the trial so what's the drawback <laughs> so, well, honestly this is this is pretty pretty amazing yeah um, the trial was really nicely designed and actually it's a good follow-on from the previous one because um, seventy-one percent of participants was white, which is exactly the proportion of people Yay. in the United States. They also have 
7% um, uh, black participants, so slightly less than the uh, US average, but um, uh, uh, Bit much better. better than the average. And they've also quoted for um, people of Asian origin and also people who are American Indian or Alaska natives and also uh, Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders. So they've stratified properly by ethnic That's good. Or, race, um, or, or ethnic group, which is great. Um, the downsides are actually not too bad. Um, so interesting, there really wasn't a kind of cholesterol, uh, sorry, a, um, uh, a cholestasis, gallbladder, uh, gallstone um, signal or a pancreatitis signal, which were the ones from uh, things like semaglutide and liraglutide. And um, is there a kind of, I don't know much about these drugs, is there a biological reason as to why that might be? I don't know. It's a great question. I have no answer for you, Tamsin. Um, the main thing is that loads of people get GI side effects. Um, uh, they get GI side effects. So like, you know, uh, in compared to the placebo, I'm like 25 to 30 percent of people are getting nausea. Um, 20 percent of people are getting diarrhea. Uh, but did it stop them it didn't stop them um, taking so, it so it looks like a lot of people have adverse events most of them seem to be mild to moderate um, in terms of stopping um, their uh, overall in the higher dose um, to zepatide uh, arms 6 to 7% are stopping because of adverse events within a year compared to 2.6% in the placebo arm so maybe four or five percent extra um, leaving the trial because of the side effects. Um, but they do have some quality of life data and some of the health related quality of life is improving. So clearly this is balancing out. There's a bit of a signal for alopecia, which isn't great. Um, uh, but in terms of ones that are sort of, you know, serious adverse events or death, there was no signal of harm in for for this treatment. Well, overall, um, that's very, very positive. So indeed. This is extremely positive, and um, basically, we should put this in the water. Um, <laughs> yes. this is, uh, you know, honestly, this is absolutely brilliant. I think it would be great to see more quality of life data. Um, they've got um, proxy outcomes for long term health benefits like blood pressure and, you know, lipids and insulin levels and stuff like that. But you know, clearly we want to follow up these cohorts to see, one, if they keep their weight off, and two, do they have less progression to diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, blah, blah, blah. Um, but overall, I think this is really exciting. And if you look back, you know, even two or three years ago, you'd say there's a couple of really rubbish drugs and surgery as good treatments for obesity. And now I think you can actually say that we've got multiple Drugs Medical alternatives, that could be, that yeah, be suitable for for patients with obesity. That's so actually we now need to really actually good. Deliver this. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's really good. A great one to end on. Super. I think this is a world record for the longest podcast we've ever done. We're just very interested in the papers we're reading. Clearly, um, I'm going to say um, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 